This is episode 23 with fast bowling expert and the founder of the amazing online community, Pace Journal, Shabaz Chowdhury. G'day legends. Before we start this episode, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. It's been six months since we last published an episode and I'm pumped to bring you a whole new series of podcasts that share the stories of some amazing people and their process of success. Welcome to The Process of Success, brought to you by Cricket Mentoring. My name is Tom Scolle, or Skulls as I'm known by. I'm a former professional cricketer and now an athlete mentor and founder of Cricket Mentoring, an online cricket community that helps cricketers become their best. I created this podcast to share the personal stories, lessons and beliefs of cricketers of various ages and stages of success. Whether it's a retired test great, someone in the middle of their professional career, or a young gun with big aspirations, I think there's so much power in each and every person's story and the lessons they've learned along the way that's got them to where they are and I hope it will inspire you to take action to become your best and achieve great things on and off the field. So let's hear the story of today's guest. Today's episode was recorded back in August this year while I was in the UK and is with a really inspiring guy. Shabaz Chowdhury is the founder of Pace Journal, a community for fast bowlers around the world. I first came across the Instagram account at the start of this year and was extremely impressed with what I saw. Having spent a huge amount of time creating content for the Cricket Mentoring Instagram account over the past few years, I know how much time and effort goes into it and when I saw Pace Journal I knew that whoever was behind it was extremely passionate about fast bowling and helping people understand the secrets of fast bowling. Their Instagram account is followed by a huge number of cricketers all over the world and Shabaz has built an amazing community by interviewing professional cricketers and coaches to share tips and ideas with anyone who wants to learn about fast bowling. When I was speaking to Shabaz and listening to his story and why he founded Pace Journal, there were so many similarities to my own story and why I founded Cricket Mentoring. His bio on his personal Instagram says, on a mission to help fast bowlers all over the world, and through his amazing content, he is certainly doing that. I really enjoyed listening to his story and learning more about the man behind this brilliant brand, and I have no doubt you will get a lot of value from his story as well. So here it is. Today's episode is brought to you by our digital academy, The Members Pavilion, which we've recently relaunched. If you're a cricketer, no matter what level you're currently at, and you're aspiring to get better and reach your potential, then The Members Pavilion can help you. Having spent the past few years interacting with cricketers all over the world and hearing their struggles and successes, we know what you need to perform at your best consistently and have built a platform to help you achieve your goals. Get access to our members-only coaching videos and drills that cover all the skills of cricket, including batting, fast bowling, off spin, leg spin, wicket keeping and fielding, and peak performance, including fitness, diet and mental skills, plus an insight from some of the world's best players that only our members get to learn from. As a member, you'll also become part of our exclusive community of like-minded cricketers from all over the world. Unfortunately, I don't have time to interact with everyone who follows us on social media anymore, and although we get loads of questions, I am spending my time teaching and helping our members in our private Facebook group. For more information or to become a member now, go to our website, cricketmentoring.com. I hope to see you as a member soon and I look forward to helping you become your best. G'day legends, I'm here at King's Cross in London with Shabazz Chowdhury. How are you mate? I'm very well, thank you, how are you? Very, very well. Now guys, uh, a lot of you might not know the man, this man sitting here with with me, but you will probably know um, what he is the founder of and what his um, brand is about. It's Pace Journal, um, an awesome, awesome Instagram account, but more than that, it's a community for fast bowlers um, all around the world and Shabazz is very very passionate the best in the business at sharing excellent information for young fast bowlers 
um, and making it accessible to anyone, which we're gonna get onto in a little while um, as we progress. But like I do with all of my guests, let's go back to the start. How did you first start playing cricket? What are your earliest memories of playing cricket? Uh, my earliest memory of playing cricket is watching my uncle. Um, he was a left-arm fast bowler from Pakistan. Uh, he played professionally over there. And I remember he came, he played two under-19 World Cups. Uh, one of them was in England. Well, not one, World Cups were in England. He toured England. And I remember he gave away Shah and Rob Key, and that seemed a nightmare of a time, because I used to go to the grounds and watch him. Um, and at that time, I think that was my first exposure to watching fast bowling. And how old were you then, do you reckon? Do you know what, I couldn't even tell you. I was, I was very young, I think I was like 10, 11 or 12. Um, I know he was making the rounds, like he was always in the headlines. And for my local club, Reading Cricket Club, he was the first overseas player that they had. And he just tormented sides there as well. And after that, I watched uh, Shoaib Akhtar. This was the 2003, 13 series, I believe, against India. I remember watching him bowl, and I think he bowled, I think it was Saywag, yeah, Saywag or Lakshman now. And I remember that the first time I ever saw like speed like that, and I just fell in love with fast bowling. Right. So he literally picked up a ball and just tried to bowl fast ever since then. And so were you playing cricket before then? Were you sort of a batter or a spinner? Because I know a lot of our guests have had funny journeys. They've started as a spinner, ended up a fast bowler, or started a fast bowler, ended up a batter. Were you playing at all before that? No, actually, um, just playing for fun. Nothing too serious. Uh, one of my, one of our family friends, uh, Shawkat, his name was. His son was actually playing county cricket for Berkshire at the time. And I remember I went to school with his son, and he came to my house once and said, "Look, do you want to come down to the cricket club?" I, I went down with him, and I remember him dropping me off and knocking on the door and saying to my dad, uh, "Uncle, can I take him more often? He's actually very good." And my dad kind of laughed. He was like, "I'd leave him like it's fine." And he goes, "No, no, uncle. He's he's very fast. Like he's quicker than everyone there." I think I should take him. So um, I went with them, and I, I think my earliest memory playing Colts cricket at the time, I think it was under 12 or something like that. I, rem I remember taking like five wickets in two overs, and the manager of the club, I think it was Hurst, Hurst or Finchampton, I know the guy's name is Ronnie, I remember that because he was my accountant uh, manager at the same time. He came out and said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. It's like our team's just like, we're too scared. But basically, I think I. I've injured one of the guys and just bowled out five of them and they were like, wow. there's no point in us playing and he's pulled the team off. So wow. um, I think from then I always thought I was a big man and watching Shoaib as well, you know, um, with the hair flying everywhere, exactly. And I remember sticking loads of oil on my hair as well. Like <laughs> It was crazy because it was very hard to grip the ball, but uh, I remember having oil on my hair and just trying to be like Shoaib Akhtar. Amazing. So you were early teens maybe or 10, 11 and... Definitely, I was around 13. So you must, it must have been that physically you were just gifted to bowl fast because, and you obviously watched a lot of cricket, but you hadn't had the hours and hours of practice up until that point. You were just... I, um, actually, when I look back at my old, old videos, I don't have a moment, but I remember looking back on them. And I looked at my action for the first time and I was like, this is disgusting. I was in so much shock because all this time I was of the belief that I looked like Shoaib and my action was like Shoaib's. And I remember when I first watched it back on camera, I was like, this looks nothing like Shoaib. And I think that's where the, the perfection trap actually started. That's where the seed was planted. But um, I just think I had the, uh, I think I had the, the heart for it at the time. I won't say I had the skill, I won't say I had the the technique or anything like that. I just think at that stage it was all hard. Yeah. Like I, I wanted to bowl fast. Excellent, and that's which we'll probably get to. That's probably one of the keys to being a good fast bowler. Now I must say, 
Um, for those listening and, and people watching, we are here at, um, near King's Cross. It is quite busy. There's a few things going on, so there might be a little bit of background noise, but hopefully this technology is working okay. <laughs> so at what point, obviously you saw your, your uncle, you saw Showup. At what point did you think, I love fast bowling, and this is something I want to pursue as a career? And in that sort of teenage years, did you have anyone, you obviously idolised Showup. Did you have any mentors that sort of guided you throughout that period? Um, at that stage when I was younger, I think I fell in love with fast bowling just by sort of getting the recognition of being the fast bowler. Because I know, you know, I know Tino Best said this in one of my podcasts, that a fast bowler sets the tone of the game. You know, we, we open up the first ball of the game. It's almost like we break bread, you know, we're the, we're the first people. It starts from us. So I just loved the feeling of standing there, you know, with the power with the power exactly yeah. batsmen sort of you know taking their guard umpires got their hand out like this i'm the one standing there everyone's looking at me all the parents that are watching at the time they're looking at me okay he's gonna start this off so i just loved that i loved the feeling of having that power that everything happened but on my terms and i actually abused it sometimes because i used to take my time i used to stand there and you know make make everyone wait and things like that because it would just um i i like that that's where i fell in love with it basically mm. but i I like the power of it and just running in bowling, blasting a batsman out, I, I love that as well. So um, that's where the love started. Um, didn't really have any mentors that that much growing up. I mean, even my uncle, he was so busy, obviously, with his own professional career that I didn't get much time to speak to him. I, didn't, I don't even think he spoke very good English at the time as well, so I probably couldn't communicate with him. But when I, I remember when I first watched my action and, and thought, this is horrible, and I basically tried to copy Brett Lee. And I just scoured the internet for information for fast bowling and Ian Pont is a name that kept flagging up. And I remember reading all of his um, articles and I remember asking my dad, can you buy me this course? And it was like £70 at the time. And he bought it for me, didn't get much use out of it. And I remember telling Ian this later as well, by the way. Was it an online course? It was an online course. I remember telling Ian afterwards in South Africa, I said, Ian, I didn't like that. And he started laughing because I'll give you your money back. But um, I then read the book, Fast Bowlers Bible. And at that stage, my dad said, look, you know, you keep, you keep reading this guy's books, you keep consuming his content, so why don't we go meet him? This is further on down the line, by the way, but that's, he would probably be my first proper, proper mentor that came into my life. Yeah, and you've mentioned your dad there, and we spoke a bit about um, your journey and how supportive your parents have been. They've always been very supportive very of your supportive. cricket dream. Very supportive. All, all of my family, I, I still remember my first county game, it was at Cambridge, uh, Cambridge University, and I remember my sister, who was studying to be a doctor at the time, she had done research all night about you know what sort of drinks uh, an athlete should have. I still remember this. She created these isotonic drinks for me, wow. and I remember being on the boundary. That's a, that was a crazy uh, experience as well because I was so used to playing like 15 over cricket to playing 40 over cricket, and I hated it. I was like, this thing is disgusting. Like this is just long. But I remember on the boundary, I had my mom, my sister. And she had these isotonic drinks for me. So always very lucky. Always had a very supportive family. Literally gave me everything I ever needed. Excellent, excellent, and that's what hopefully most people watching have, but obviously there's ways around that if, if you don't. Um, now, moving through your teenage years and into your early sort of adulthood, you, you got the opportunity, you were involved with Middlesex through that period, and then you sort of, you were telling me a little bit earlier about how things came out at Northamptonshire as well, and, and you had almost had an opportunity to play professional cricket with Northamptonshire. How did that whole period look? Um, I, I used to have a very big delivery strike. I think that's because I was copying Brett Lee at the time as well. And I remember doing this drill called the three knee drill uh, that Ian was an advocate of. 
so you're coming into the crease with a high knee when you're in the crease you you know when you're on your back foot you lift your left uh, your left knee up to engage the left hip and then as you drive out you drive out with your right knee and I think that I'm not sure if it is that but I remember having a very big delivery stride and I used to always get an anterior pin, anterior pingement or something like that on my left Achilles and I went everywhere I saw every sort of physio um, no one could fix it and I remember seeing a um, um, orthotic specialist and he said look you've got flat feet so you're going to um, you're going to need to create a custom insole to try and counteract um, the forces when you land that didn't help either and then Ian at that point said go and have a meeting with Barry Goodran who was the North Ants physio at the time I think he still is and um, I went to the county ground and I, I saw Barry he, he told me how I have to actually strap my ankle because he goes you're going to have to basically pull this tibialis bone back so that when, you, when it does land, you almost have to like reverse counter the, the movement of that bone pushing forward, which is causing this crazy pain in your Achilles. Um, sorry if this all sounds so no, technical, no, no, but... No, it's good, it's good um, to know. As, as I walked out of the physio room, I bumped into Dave Cagle, who was the first team head coach for North House at the time. And I remember him, I think he was probably like, who's this guy? Like, you know, this is the first team sort of uh, physio room, what's he doing here? And I introduced myself to him, my name's Shabazz. And he goes, oh, you're, you're Ian's boy, you know, he always talks about you. And he said, um, I want to see Paul. He asked me a few questions. I didn't tell you this bit, by the way, when we were walking, but he asked me some questions. I remember giving him the most ludicrous replies. Like, I think he said something like, what do you um, what do you think about variations of slower balls? And I said, yeah, I, I got the faster ball. And he started laughing. And I, he, I think he said something about, what do you think about uh, team, uh, team spirit and playing as a team? And I said, oh, I think it's nonsense. I think... If everyone thought that they could handle their own job, you've got 11 guys who don't look to each other, um, they'll take the responsibility upon themselves. I remember walking out of there and getting a phone call from Ian. I was in the car with my dad going back home to Reading. And Ian goes, what the hell did you say to David Capel? And I was in, in my head, I'm like, I'm trying to turn the volume down in case my dad hears that, you know, Ian's having a go at me. And I said, oh, um, nothing, nothing. And he goes, whatever you say, he loves you. <laughs> and he was like, he wants you to come and have a bowl um, at Chelmsford. Uh, at the break of the um, first last game so then I went back and had a bowl into the mitt David Cape was holding it and I just remember coming out there and Ian telling me he, he thinks you're very raw he thinks that you know someone with that sort of mentality doesn't come, come around very often and he made a special note of the fact that Shabazz didn't tell me what I wanted to hear he told me what he really cared about and um, we, we need to sign this kid so I got hooked up with the academy at that time I was under the tutelage of David Ripley an amazing man um, and yeah I, at that time at that stage there I was on the sort of cards to play first in cricket I believe it would have been 2010 season at that stage and how old would you have been then I was 18 going on 19 right so yeah. you're in a good space Very um, you're, you're sort of where you want to be at that age now like all great stories there's a bit of a uh, plot changing and, and things then turned a bit pear-shaped. Um, can you t tell us a bit more and tell our listeners and viewers a bit more about what happened there and the struggles you went through then? There was about six plot changes that happened before that as well, but um, we'll save that. Um, I was just so obsessed with wanting to be the best. So my, my dream was always I want to be the fastest bowler in the world. And I remember I did absolutely everything in my power to try and make that happen. Um, I really, really felt like I had it in my, I had it in me. And with Ian being such a reputable coach as well, um, I think he really, I think he really felt that enthusiasm from me as well. And I could tell that 
you know, he would give me that extra attention. He would really give me that time. Um, you could obviously see that your heart was in it, which you spoke about at the start. I, I made a, I made a hell of a lot of sacrifices, and you know, anything that was ever asked of me, I did twice as hard. I did, you know, I know there's loads of kids out there who do exactly the same, but I really felt like, you know, this, this is in my reach. And I, I remember at that stage, I was Ollie Stone, you know, who plays Test cricket now. He was literally, um, he was with me at the time at Northampton Academy, and I still remember those days so, like, so vividly in my mind, like bowling and Ollie's there, and everyone's like. Oh, Ben Duckett. Yeah. I remember no one really wanted to face me at that time. Rob Keogh was a good friend of mine at that time yeah. as well. I remember just, you know, I had everything at that stage. And I was so obsessed with wanting to become better and better and better. I was looking for ways. And I felt like from a technical perspective, there was not much I could do, um, you know, naively speaking, not much I could do to get better. So I was like, maybe I need to go and look into other domains to try and bring practices into cricket to, to become this 100 mile an hour monster and I looked at javelin I looked at uh, baseball and I remember going to South Africa with Ian for 11 days for a camp in Potterstrom which is an amazing place and we were we were learning from the coach of Jan Zelezny I don't know if you know who that is I think he's like six time world record holder of javelin right. through 98.48 meters I'm, like his mechanics are just unreal and we were actually training there with Andreas Thorkelsen, who was a world champion at that time. And he was almost as strong as an Olympic um, lifter. He was huge, this guy was massive and strong. And I remember Tertius, who was Jan's coach at the time, he said, look at Jan, and he goes, this guy can't lift feathers. And look at Andreas, and he goes, this guy, he could be an Olympic power lifter, he's that strong. This guy throws eight meters further than him. So what Turtus is trying to tell me is that's how important technique is. And I think my, that, that, I mean those, that word there, even Ian was with me, I think that really opened our eyes. We were like, damn, like, you know, there's obviously a lot more going on here technically and biomechanically than we, than we think. And I just soaked everything from Turtus at the time. I learned everything about javelin um, and I just wanted to apply it. But then you all know this yourself, being a professional cricketer in the past, that the playing season is so busy, you can't work on those things and play at the same time. Mm. So I, at, that, at that stage, I really thought to myself, I can't play, because I need to take a break here. And I remember my own personal circumstances at the time, as I mentioned to you before, um, you know, my brother was an engineer, you know, studied being an engineer at university, my sister studied to be a doctor. So my family kind of had that little bit of pressure on me, like, hey, son, what are you doing? You know, you don't have education on your side, so what are you doing? So I, I kind of felt the pressure that, okay, I need to make this work. And I thought, if I go and learn these unbelievable skills from these guys, it's going to turn me into something, something the world has never seen before. Mm. And that kind of led to my demise, I would say. Mm. I mean, I, looking back on it, I would comfortably say that that was probably one of the biggest errors I made was staying away from playing the game that season mm. and potentially being, being introduced into first team counter cricket to work on some of these really fine, crazy technical aspects. So you made a conscious decision, I'm gonna not play any cricket to yeah. then become this incredible player in 12 months time. Exactly that. And I remember having a conversation with David Ripley at the time and I, I explained to him my personal circumstances at home, uh, quite tough. And I remember him actually saying to me, because I was signed by then, he was saying to me, look, so they obviously are paying me money. And he was like, we, we can give you compassionate leave um, to try and buy you some time to sort whatever you've got on at home going on. 
come, you need to play. And um, I think I handled that very bad because I was trying to work on these things. I went back out to South Africa actually for three months, this time on my own, completely off my own back. Um, and everything fell apart. And I, I went out there with a friend of mine, Nabil, who was just trained to be a boxer, let's say, at that time. I remember that was probably one of the darkest moments of, uh, of my cricketing life because I was, I think I was 18, 18, 18 years old at the time and everything was crumbling and I had no one there. Ian wasn't there, it was just me. And I think it really hit me when my mum rang me one, one night and I heard her voice and I started crying. I had to pretend the phone, like the line was fuzzy or something, I cut the phone off. But um, that conscious decision that I did make, I think was yeah, catastrophic for me mm. at that and time. So I know a bit more, but to, to fill others in, what, what then happened, happened after that? Three months in South Africa, things got even worse from there on, didn't they? Yeah, because I think what happened is I lost my sort of natural flair and natural style and I started to really break things down by the, we're talking by the frame, because just like that camera there, I had exactly the same thing with me everywhere. Uh, I would record and I'd go put it back into the laptop and I'd look at it frame by frame. Um, and I was trying to recreate my action frame by frame. And be perfect. And be perfect. And when I was actually trying to bowl, I was trying to do exactly the same thing. But, you know, they say hindsight is a crazy thing. Because looking back on it, and I think to myself, you idiots. Like, you know, fast bowling happens like that. You're talking 0.1 seconds, you're in and out, done. How on earth can you actually consciously control, control those movements? Part, you, can't, yeah. you can't do it. And, um, and there's got to be some natural well, movement uh, to your body. Even science would tell you that. Like, um, fast bowlers rely heavily on uh, an eccentric stretch reflex. And that happens without conscious uh, thought. It's the body's own self-defense mechanism from stopping your shoulder from getting dislocated. So it speeds up the movement. You can't think about that. Mm. It just happens. Mm. The best way of actually describing that is, you know if you touch something which is really hot and your hand just, you just move away or you, you step on something sharp and your hand just, it moves away. Those decisions are not controlled by your um, your conscious brain. No, no. It's, a, it's a central nervous system. Yeah. Uh, it's a activity. fight or flight. It's, it's the fight or flight thing, yeah. exactly that. So by me trying to control those movements, I was actually breaking those movements. And you were creating, you were moving from your subconscious into your conscious. Into mind. my conscious, and that, that is where everything kind of fell apart. And I found it extremely hard to try and get back to just letting things click. And um, yeah, that then started the, uh, the three odd year odyssey of trying to get everything back. And I honestly, looking back and I don't know how I stayed strong, even in my own mind, even though I was in the dark place, I don't know how I kept the belief that I would eventually find it again. Mm. And so did you have, your family were supporting you at that time? Did you have a lot of people um, supporting you in that dark time or were you sort of left to your own devices and you had to pull yourself out eventually? To be honest, I, you know, when you're in a, when you're in a bad place mentally, you kind of block out a lot of help as well. And I think I kind of did that. Um, the gentleman I was telling you off air, Naeem, a uh, good friend of mine, I remember at the time he would always tell me, just play, just play, just play, things will get better, things will get better. And I remember, play I actually remember thinking to myself, you know what, two years, nothing's working for me right now, uh, maybe I should just play. And I thought I've got nothing to lose, you know. And you were still chasing perfectionism off the field at this stage? <laughs> no, yeah, I was. You were still yeah. reinventing things and trying to go frame by frame yeah, and yeah, be yeah, perfect yeah, yeah. I, while not playing a game. Exactly. I, I actually, at that stage, thought to myself, 
that's the only way I'm going to make it right is if I go back frame by frame and, and fix things. Um, again, technique is, is a beautiful thing, but I, I will always stand by this because I feel like I'm a living example of it. Technique isn't everything. Not at all. And um, my technique actually looked perfect. That's the, the crazy thing was it looked perfect. Frame by frame, it was perfect, but the result was crap. And that's what I couldn't get my head around. And that's where I was banging my head against a brick wall, thinking, what's going on here? And I still then thought to myself, okay, technically, I, maybe I need to do something. And I remember even going to the extremes of thinking that maybe I'm just not fit enough. And I reached out to, at the time, you know, do you know David Hayes? Yes, Former heavyweight yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember his coach, um, Ruben Tavares, his name is. I remember reaching out to Ruben and Pete, Peter Marcus Guiano and Ruben Tavares. Um, these guys have trained Amir Khan, David Hay, John Terry, Rio Ferdinand, and they've got a crazy roster. I met them in Windsor, I showed them my videos, I showed them my passion, and they took me on. And um, they, were, they were doing all of my fitness for me and everything, and I, I was so strong, I was so fit, but I was still in bits. Mentally? Bowling wise. Like, and so how, how did you, how were you judging whether you were going well or not if you weren't playing? Were you judging it on how they were, how it was feeling or how they were coming out or what the speed gun says or what were you? How it was feeling, how it was coming out and I, it's, it's the best way of me explaining it is I know what it feels like to go fast, right? And I know what I was doing is so, it's like a million years away from what I was doing. So for me, that was just a very tough thing to accept. So I kept saying to myself, I can't play like this guy. Like, I, I, know for a feeling, I know for a fact that I'm bowling considerably slower than what I can do. And your pride probably wouldn't, and your ego wouldn't let you that's, go and perform at that level. That's exactly the thing. And I, again, I remember Naeem at the time just saying, just play, just play. And I took his advice and um, he was playing for Dinton at the time in the home counties Premier League and I played a game for them in the first team and I remember going there and I had all this pressure on me everyone was like, oh this is that Shabazz kid you know oh this is that kid and um, that pressure was so real and I remember the first over it was like honestly I bowled like 14 no balls wides everywhere Just, the thing was crazy so funny actually that I was still I think the adrenaline was helping me produce some sort of speed because I remember the umpire turning around and saying to me mate um, he bowled about 10 or 12 no balls, but I'll tell you one thing, I've never seen a, a guy make a batsman look so average on a free hit <laughs> like you have, because I was getting them out on free yeah, hits, yeah, wow. but um, it just felt terrible. But maybe looking back, the free hit was where you could just let things loose a bit, and you could relax and just run in and bowl fast, whereas when you had to bowl a normal ball, a normal, oh, yeah. you were a bit tense, you were too tense. But again, um, your mind, well, especially me, went into over-analytical mode, and when I was bowling those no balls, I'm thinking, where do I sense it out? But uh, where do I where do I jump from? Where do I start my run up from? What's going to happen here? Um, so again, it was very flight, fight or flight mode at that stage. Mm. And I remember playing that one game. It was such a horrible experience. I was like, I can't do that. Mm. And um, that's when I, I actually accepted that this is done. And I was like, I've lost it. Mm. And yeah, that, that was the moment. Now two things. We're going to just progress from that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But moving forward to where you are now, having start founded. Pace Journal having interviewed some of the best fast bowlers in the world, knowing what you know now, what would you say or what would you do if you were mentoring yourself 10 years ago? Oh, that's a beautiful question because it's something I always put out on Pace Journal and I always, always ask all of my guests this question, 
without any prejudice or bias. Like, you know, I didn't tell them what I think. I always ask them the question. Um, trust yourself and don't chase perfection because it's a myth. Mm. And I still get, I still get influence. That, that, those simple two sentences could have changed your career and your life. Hundred percent. And um, again, I, I'm not here to try and put blame on anyone that did, no one told me that. At that stage, I think I was very ignorant as well. Um, as a young man, so that's the other advice I'd say, don't be ignorant to any of the young kids out there. Even if you've got the world at your feet or you think you've got the world at your feet, don't be ignorant because uh, the game is a lot more than what you think it is. So even if, no matter how well things are going for you, be open-minded, listen to people. Um, doesn't mean you have to take on what everyone says, but have an open mind and take information in. Because you never know you know, what you might be listening to or reading or watching, yeah, yeah, yeah. could be gold. So that's, and I still do it to this day, I keep telling these guys, play the game. Yeah. And I know some of you, I mean, there's a kid called Amon from India, and I love this kid because he's, he's very much like me. And I see him post these things frame by frame, and he's watching, you know, his positions and he's so happy. And I remember saying to him, Amon, I'm telling you from my heart. And my experience. And my experience, let go of that, get in the middle, play the game, I guarantee you, Learn that same position, experience. that same position you're in, you ain't gonna be in that position in the game. And until you play more of those games, that's where you've gotta do your learning. And um, that's the number one piece of advice I'd give. Yeah. There's a place, there's a place and a time for technique, but there's a big difference between training and performing. Performance is something, it's, it's all mental for me. Mm. I feel like the, what you do technically is great, if you have major flaws or deficiencies or you've got like a, an injury or something that you really have to combat but the the learning that you get in the middle that is irreplaceable absolutely something that i've started to use in my coaching that chris rogers passed on to me from a, a seminar he went to was when you are training there's two zones there's the performance zone where you are just making decisions and you're training or playing you're training like it's a game and there's the learning zone where you can break things down and you start thinking about but what a lot of people, especially from a batting point of view, is they mix the two. They try and make good decisions to balls at 135 k's an hour yeah. while thinking about their shoulder yeah, and their head well, and their hands, yeah. which really that should be done when you're facing a bowling machine in a sort of isolated situation. And when you're facing the bowls, it's all about trusting yourself. So it's, it's trying not, exactly, it's trying not to cross those learning and performance zones over a bit. Um, going back to that point then where we, we sort of paused, you bowled that over, you played that game and you thought, this is it, I'm not going to make it. What came next? Because I know you sort of spiralled your life off the field, sort of didn't go so well from there on either. Yeah, at that stage, um, my brother had graduated, he had founded a company, um, him and his, his lot, well, you know, I'd say they're going to kill me, but his only friend, uh, Fadil, um, they started a company and I think I just spent a lot of time with them. And I remember going to their office and actually doing drills in, in the middle of the corridor of their office. I remember I used to do this all the time. And um, I just spent a lot of time with them and sort of understood uh, entrepreneurship. So just shadowing my brother um, and learning from him and learning about business. And I think from there I thought to myself, okay, uh, I, I want to be a businessman, you know? Like, um, I, those same, uh, and I put a post about the other day about this where I said, guys, no matter how, you know, if you if you do not make it in this game, the skills and the habits that yeah, you acquire yeah. from the game yeah. can be transferred into other parts of your yeah, life. I saw that, really. So I I felt like you know I have the ability to work hard. I have the ability to um, t 
take rejection and, and still persist and go forward. So I'm, I want to start a business. And uh, I sort of dipped my toes in entrepreneurship just by learning from them, learning and, from my and brother. cricket was completely on the back burner at the stage? Completely on the back burner. And I, I still remember sitting, uh, I went to a meet, a pitch actually, an investment pitch with Fadil and my brother. And we were sat in a, uh, a lobby of the train station and he said to me, you need to do something in cricket. Become a coach, do something in cricket. And I was like, no. He was like, why? And I go, just don't talk to me about cricket. Too he, painful. Too painful. And I remember him saying yeah, to me, word for word, he said, you gave too much to this game. Get something out. And I said, no, no, no. I don't want to hear. I didn't want to talk about cricket, leave it, whatever. You know, made excuses, ran away from it. Um, but yeah, for me, cricket was the thing of the past. And it was very tough because what I started doing is I, I, I was always very fond of marketing. And um, I started taking on like, individual clients. And one of my clients was actually a boxer. Uh, he's a professional boxer from Reddick to Mukamucha. And he was, he was doing very well. He had 16 fights, he was undefeated, on the brink of fighting for a British title. And we were doing a PR tour for him. And we went to uh, Reading Chronicle. One of the gents over there were interviewing him. He turned around and he, he asked me, he was like, oh, are you, who's playing for this year? And I was like, yeah, looking around, I was like, what? Like, How'd you know that? And he was like, come on, man, like, I've been covering Reading News for ages, I know who you are. And Tamuka was looking at me as well, and I said, he was like, what's this guy talking about? Because I didn't tell anyone. I kept that all very much to myself, because I, I was trying to run away from the whole, I used to make cricket. True. Yeah, I was trying to run away from it so much. And I remember when he said it, and it, again, I just spiraled on, like that hurt me so much. I was like, damn, like this guy had to bring it up, didn't he? And um, yeah, I felt like everywhere I went, because I was so passionate, because I was so committed, people, they either ever they either saw me running on the road, bowling in a park, or in the gym. They never saw me anywhere else. And I remember, I remember saying this to uh, another guy that I was talking to the other day, and I said, probably the most painful thing for me to accept is that I lost everything because I was overambitious. You know, if I was, I don't know, chasing girls or partying or getting into bad habits, maybe I'd accept that. You know what, man? I made mistakes and I lost them. But the fact that I was just so passionate. You were trying too hard. I was trying too hard in it. And for that to be the reason why, it was a bit of a pill to swallow. So yeah, yeah. I remember just abusing myself, just eating a lot. And, you know, at the time, I, I don't think I was depressed or anything like that. but. I remember meeting Ruben after a long, long time in the hotel and he saw me and he looked at my state and he said, the way you are now is a reflection of your mental state. And I remember walking away from that again, that haunted me and made us, what do you mean by that? And um, I guess, you know, the, the whole thing about just hating cricket so much, I, just, I didn't want to, I still want to be associated with being an athlete anymore. So yeah, I, I abused myself, I put on a ton of weight, I think 31 odd kilos of excess. Yeah, but <laughs> right, so that, that's almost probably at the lowest point then. Yeah, and then, how did you come back? You mentioned to me um, before we caught up about mapping it all out there. So what was the turning point? And then how did you lose all the weight, find your love of cricket again, and get back to sort of, I'm sure we could talk for days about yeah, it, but yeah, get yeah, back yeah. to where we are now. Um, I don't think you even know this, Tom, but my uh, cousin, is, his name is Bilal Asif. He's plays Test cricket for Pakistan. Okay. He just recently took five on debut against Australia yeah, yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. He took five with New Zealand. Yeah. Um, in our family, we've obviously come from a cricket family, as you can tell. It was always my uncle, and he was also in the Test team just as a reserve for Wazi Makram. I think in 2002 or 2003 at the time. 
it was always my uncle and then it was me and Bilal. And Bilal's probably been from more than me. No one ever expected him to do anything again. I remember, this is when I was like obese, I remember my whole family, my dad coming down and saying to me, oh, Bilal just hit the fastest hundred in domestic history of Pakistan. I'm like, what? I'm going to YouTube and the whole world's talking about it. Like, it's the next Shida Freedy, the next Chris Gales has arrived. And then, next thing you know, he's, he's, in, he's in the one-day squad. And he took five wickets on day on second um, ODI against Zimbabwe. And I remember the, the, the joy of the family at that time. Everyone was like, wow, and I was so happy for him. And I remember my brother saying to me, come on, like, just try, try one more time, just come back. Even if it's not to try and get to this sort of level, just fulfill your potential. And I still ran away from it. I was still like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. And um, everyone around me at the time, uh, and I think the Bilal story really sparked a lot of uh, inspiration into me as well, because nobody, like, even in our family, to this day, and it's really funny, because I've got six uncles, and they're all so crazy. Like, they're all, I always, uh, I call them the PCB. Because uh, they, you know, you know what it's like when family sits down and have these chats. Yeah, they've all got their oh, opinions. they've all got their opinion, and they still to this day they were like, they're picking out all these flaws in Bilal. And I think Bilal, if you want to say, he his hands up. I was like, what do you want me to do? Yeah, <laughs> like, I've gone from the street win. to play Test cricket, like, and you're still telling me I'm crap? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, come yeah. on, guys. So um, at that stage, I was like, you know what? It's not him. I can't do it. And I remember then my uh, my mum actually having a chat with me. She's never been never been supportive of cricket like that. My dad has always been um, like, oh, come on, I want you to play, I want you to play, but my mum never was. And she said to me, she was like, you know, if you want to, give it a go. Because even at that stage with business, um, my family is very risk averse. So they were like, look, we don't want you to be in business. It's risky, you know, things don't, might not work out. What are you going to do? Get a job, you know, the typical safety first approach. Yeah. And I was like, um, no, nah, I don't know, mum. But when she said it, it, it put, put a seed in my mind. And one of, probably my only friend who stayed consistent with me throughout, through all the good times and all the bad times is a guy called Ochin. Um, even in my uh, entrepreneurship days, I had a lot of self-doubt. He was the one, he was always the one that said, you, you've got it, you mate. Can do it. You could do it, yeah. Those exact words, he was the one. And I remember having a chat with him and I said, uh, Och, you know, my mum and dad, crazy, mate, they're, they're saying this. And he, he was saying it to me all private. And he, I remember him just saying to me, what, what have I told you? And I was like, what do you think? And he was like, let's just do it. He goes, don't think too far ahead. You know, don't think you're going to be next England superstar. Just do it for yourself. You know, because there's clearly a lot of regret and a lot of pain there. So I was like, um, okay. And I remember sitting down, I said to my brother at the time, um, I said to him, I'll let you know in a week. I said, give me one week. And in that week, I was just preparing my mind for, okay, how am I going to do this? First challenge, I got to lose 32 plus kilos. Second challenge, um, I've got to uh, get my bowling action back. Third challenge, how the hell am I going to try and make a career out of this? I think at the time it was June or July 2017. Bilal was getting married in December 2017. So my dad set that as a benchmark for me. He goes, look, we could, we're going to be going to Pakistan in December for his wedding. And um, he was also linked up with the Lahore Calandas in the PSL. And um, my dad said to me, go with him. You know, because you've got a cousin who's you know, in the test team, like, I'm sure he can pull some strings to get you somewhere. So I was like, okay, that, that's going to be my benchmark. So I sat down and wrote the, the weeks down and I thought to myself, how am I, how am I going to do this? I've worked out a way of losing the weight, um, like how I be believed I was going to lose the weight. And then I sort of thought to myself, okay, how am I going to try and get my action back? And after like two, three days, 
I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, I kind of made my mind up. I spoke to my clients at the time from my, my marketing business and I kind of let them know, like, look, I'm going to be doing this. It's probably going to take a bit of my time. They, they were all very supportive and they all said to me at the time, look, that's fine. Like, you know, if you can't give us as much time as you used to, that's fine. Um, I put, I sort of budgeted aside how much money this is going to cost me, you know, because this is another thing people don't realize when it comes to training. It's not cheap, man. Like, and especially when you're investing in yourself, you're getting trainers or coaches or something like that. It does just, cost. You know, gym fees, equipment fees, food. I mean, food's not cheap. Uh, you know, know trying, to eat, trying to eat healthy is not the yeah, most yeah. cheapest option. Yeah. And then I factored into that, that, you know, if I get injured, physiotherapy, stuff like that. Again, I, you know, I'm so, so, so grateful to my parents uh, and my brother because, you know, They've never, I've never been in the need where I need money like that. Yeah. Like I remember my dad saying to me at that stage, you know, bless him, he's, he's an old man, not too old dad. <laughs> so I remember him saying to me, look, I, I will work. You, whatever you need, I'll, it's there, I'll support you. And I remember my brother, I mean, he probably, he, I mean, I think he said to me, look, you don't even have to say anything. You need something, it's there. Um, so yeah, I, I mapped it out. At that stage, I was 18 and a half stone. First thing I knew is I can't bowl like that because um, common sense would tell you that much weight going through your uh, your knees, your hips, your ankles, I'll probably get injured within a week. So at that stage, I, I said to myself, I need to get under 95 kilos. So I think, if my math is correct, I think I was 112 when I began. And I said to myself, um, when I get under 95, I will start to actually jog in and bowl. But before that, I'll just do a lot of drills. All just drills, visualizing, getting things together. Um, that was the first step. Mm. Um, do you want me to go? On? Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Um, just I'll take this moment to thank all the great mums and dads out there for all their support. <laughs> Mate, yeah, yeah, thank them all. Like, even if it's not mums and dads, friends, guys like yourself, yeah. even even that, like even what the work we do. You know, people always ask me. Just digressing a little bit. People always ask me, how do you do it? I know Jock, Brett Lee's coach, he, he messaged me the other day, he goes, do you sleep? And they always ask me, how, how have you got it in you to keep giving? And I say, very easy, because I had it. Yeah, yeah. Because people did it for me. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's easy for me to pay it forward, yeah, yeah. because I had that. Yeah. And I don't want to rob someone of that, if yeah. they don't have that support. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Um, so you had, what was the lifestyle changes, or the diet changes, or the fitness? How did all that look to lose that initial 27 kilos, or 17 kilos, whatever it was? Very unhealthy, and uh, again, I had obviously very, very highly qualified coaches around me at the time. I didn't even try and speak to them, because to be honest, the reason, this time around, Tom, I did it differently, because I said I want to do this completely by myself. I don't want, I don't want any assistance from anyone. I didn't even tell Ian, I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell my cousins, I didn't tell my, um, my um, uh, like my friends, I just kept it very quiet. I needed to tell my clients because obviously it affected my work. But I thought to myself, I'm going to just take myself away, and this is going to be a one-to-one -one battle with me and my mind. And um, the main lifestyle changes were obviously clean eating, so stopping the crazy fizzy drinks, chocolates, sugar. yeah, the sugar, um, the junk food. Um, and luckily, through Tamuka, I saw how he used to lose a lot of weight to make weight for fighting. He had this uh, sweatsuit that he used to just literally do cardio in. That's the first thing I went and bought was a sweatsuit. And uh, I was just doing cardio like every single day, um, twice a day. And I was training very, very hard. It, it wasn't impact stuff. Like I, I learned that from Ruben over time that, you know, be careful how you manage your the impact loads. So if you're going to do one day where you're sort of doing sprinting and you're hitting the ground hard, 
the next day you don't want to you don't want to do that like take the load off get in the pool mm. you know get on a bike mm. try and take that mm. that stress off so I, I used everything i learned over those four or five years with those guys and um, applied it to this. And you just set your own training program? I set my own training program. Um, and was there, what was getting you out of bed? Was it the getting into the December wedding? Was it making your mum happy? Was it making yourself happy again? Was it the, the feeling of, I don't want to look in the mirror anymore at this? What was getting you out of bed every morning, do you think? That's a great question because even people in the gym, they always said to me, because oh, my dad is known to be quite forceful, but he actually isn't. But um, they were always like, oh, you know, you're doing this to your dad. And I was like, I'm not. You know, like, you know, are you doing this for yourself? Are you happy? And I was like, yes. So what was getting me out of bed was when, when I set myself a challenge, I'm all in. And um, I remember Mike Tyson actually saying this. He was a huge inspiration of mine as well growing up. He said, I'm either the top of the world or bottom of the ocean. Unfortunately, I don't have that balance. And that's so ironic because the campaign we launched at the moment is keep balance. Because I feel like that's the one thing I didn't have. And, um, so you're all or nothing. I'm all or nothing. So for me, I, when I made my mind up that I'm coming back, like it was everything. It was everything. So get, it's almost like I'd um, I put that in my mind, and I had the date on the wall, and I'd go to sleep literally. My bed's here, and on the wall in front of me. I'd put the date there, you know, December 10, because that was the day I was going to be Ian Pompadour. I kept it in my diary on that day I will I have to meet him so I don't know how I'm going to lose all this weight in that time but I will do it and when at this point was it it was middle of the year-ish it was mid-July at that time it was very hot and um, I remember the first training session really broke my heart because I was like um, I think I trained for like two three minutes and I was out of breath and I was like I don't know how I'm going to do this and I've, I've been known to uh, I'm not I'm not a fashionista if you want to call it that like I don't believe in brands and all this sort of stuff but and I always used to train I used to buy stuff at Primark and train in that but I I remember that at that stage I needed to do something to give me a little bit more so I went to JD and I bought Under Armour and Nike and I remember Ocha at the time saying to me oh this, this is not you like, why'd you do that and I said you know what I'll be honest with you I'm, I'm trying to find ways of just like tapping into my mind in some yeah, way yeah, yeah. so for me feeling a bit different maybe. feeling a bit different so for me I was wearing these like cool you know amazing branded clothes and I thought to myself I've got to I've got to be that athlete and crazy when I look back at my Instagram because I kind of documented that entire journey um, when I look back at it and I actually look at the way I look I looked like an athlete obviously I was overweight but I looked like an athlete in terms of the clothes I was wearing and I think that kind of rubbed off on me mm. like I felt like I had to perform like an athlete mm. so that was helping me and that's that's what a lot of people say if you want to get the job dress like you've got the job and wear a suit to the interview so you feel like you've got that power and it sounds like you were doing it in the sporting sense that, that's exactly what i was doing um because you know when you just put something on you know not saying anything wrong with not spending you know tons on clothes and stuff like that but i think it is a bit of a self-reflection as well and it's all that investment you've it's invested investment, that money you've exactly invested that. that time to go and do it you're not going to let yourself down exactly there. so I started off. Uh, I started off training like that, and I, I would weigh myself every morning, and I'd weigh myself every evening, and I, I was literally tracking it um, day by day. Again, like I said, it was definitely not healthy because on so many occasions I crashed, and I think after like two weeks I'd be completely gone. Like I'd be yawning every time. And I, was, I was eating so healthily, you know, I was having like organic foods, superfood shakes, um, drinking like a liter of vegetable juice every day. And um, I remember speaking to Roddy, another old coach of mine, a very good friend, and he said to me, you have CNS fatigue. 
I don't know if you're aware of that. It's, it's I mean, it's amazing. I, I, I'd encourage every athlete to look into CNS fatigue. CNS. CNS. Yeah. Um, central nervous system fatigue. Um, he basically, it's also known as adrenal fatigue. And the best way he described it to me is he says, Shabazz, this is the secret to peak performance. It's controlling your adrenal, uh, your CNS. And the more I looked into it, I think Charlie Francis did a huge study on it. And he said that, think of your body like a battery or a phone. You're at 100%. You can't keep going there. At some stage, that's going to that's gonna down and you have to recharge. And this is why rest is so, so important for any athlete. And there are certain tests that you can do. I downloaded an app on my phone. It's called the CNS Tap Test. And where you literally, for 30 seconds, you just tap on your phone like this. And it gives you a number. And it gives you this graph and you get a trend. And I think, I think tapping... I think there's a lot of uh, neurons or something like that in your finger. Tapping on, just doing this movement here is a central nervous system movement. So that's a way for your phone to sort of measure where you, what your, like, you how at. healthy your CNS is. And I was crashed. I was burnt. I was down here. So I had no energy, even though I, I was eating so well, I had no energy. And I remember, and that's dangerous by the way, because you pick up injuries. I remember at that time I had a shoulder injury as well. You easily pick up injuries, you easily get ill. Um, even if you want to be fast, you won't be fast yeah, because yeah. your your muscles, your t your fibers will not fire. Mm. And I remember I was just going to cut you off there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was watching a bit of the, it's obviously day one of the third Ashes test today, and Joffre Archer's speeds were down. I know he's been one of your guests. He's yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and he's the talk of the world at yeah, the moment. He but really is, yeah. Michael Holding was talking about the workload he had during the Lord test and the speeds he hit and the adrenaline that he would have used up there. Mm -hmm. Three day break. I wonder if that's Holding is basically talking about CNS. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. And um, I remember Roddy at the time said to me, "You need to take a week or two off." And I was like, "Hell no, no way." I was like, I'm looking at my calendar. I was like, "No way, I can't afford to." I can't afford to. And I remember him saying to me, "You have to." He was like, and at that time I didn't respect it. So I continued mm. through sheer perseverance. Running will, on twenty percent or running on this is probably minus. I was still going. And I was still getting it done. But eventually, I remember, and this is a true story, I remember walking out of the gym, I live five minutes from the gym. I remember walking out, taking two steps, and I literally dropped on the floor. Before this, I had a warning sign as well, because I came downstairs to reception, and I said to the lady, can you give me some sugar? She was like, what? She was like, give me some sugar. She was like, the thing's closed. I was like, you're either gonna have to call an ambulance, because I'm gonna crash here, give me some sugar. And she gave me this like flapjack, and I had it. Again, I ignored everything. I kept training, kept training, kept training. And I remember walking out of the gym and I literally collapsed on the floor and I rang my brother and said, can you pick me up? And he went berserk on me and I was like, what are you talking about? Is it two minutes away? He's coming. I was like, no, honestly, Tabs, pick me up. I'm on the floor. He picked me up. I went home. I was ill. I had like shivers and everything. I, I, I had to take a week off. But um, that somehow, some way, I was losing the weight. Um, and uh, yeah, I was seeing results from that. I was losing the weight. I was getting fitter. I was getting faster. Um, Technique was still not there. Yeah. That was a horrible, horrible thing as well. Before we get on to the next yeah. part in progression, how would you now, knowing what you know about CNS, how would you advise, or how do you advise, young, desperate to for success fast bowlers, or any athletes for that matter, to manage their CNS and have rests in between all the hard training? Listen to your body. And um, another thing that Ruben always taught me, when you feel ill, that's not when you were ill, mate. You were ill three days before. Mm. Because when you feel the symptoms, that's when the... Too late. It's, that's the peak. Yeah. But you actually got ill before that. Mm. 
And I remember when I was training with them, these guys are very smart. They, they used to, they, Pete asked me to check my body temperature and my uh, heart rate every morning. And he used to make me put it in the graph. And before training sessions, he'd ask to show me the graph. And literally, if I had dipped a little bit below my average, he'd say to me, we're not training hard today. Some days he even said, go home. And I was like, why? And he goes, because you're ill. And I said, oh, mate, I feel fine, I feel mm. great. He goes, no, no, you're ill. Mm. He goes, you'll know about it in three days. Wow. He goes, if you try and train now, you'll you will you will do some damage yeah. and you'll break down. Wow. Um, so my advice to them is listen to your body and use common sense. You get it, you, I'm sure you get the same thing. These guys are bowling every single day. Mm. And I was talking to another friend of mine. Um, he's actually a physio. And he's just going out to do some volunteer work in India and he goes when I went out there he goes the, the problem is a lot of the batsmen need bowlers mm. and you'll notice as well right mm. Bowl, batting to a bowler is a lot better than batting to a machine yeah, yeah, yeah. so you need as many bowlers as you can and for the bowlers they think this is my opportunity to so much competition shine. yeah I don't want to miss out of that I don't want to miss out this is my time to show people and for them bowling for four hours they think that what that shows is that I'm, I'm you know I've got stamina I'm committed we're actually you're harming yourself. So common sense will tell you, you can't bowl every day. I still tell these guys, till to this day, I still get it. I bowl seven days a week. Mm. I'm like, when do you rest? Mm. Oh, I don't rest. And that's a lot to do with the Indian culture, but it's it's just, and it's like you say, it's just the level of competition is just relentless that they don't want to miss an opportunity to succeed or be better. But it's just ludicrous when you think about it. And I suppose from, I'm a batting specialist and I, I mentor a lot of young batters and it's very different to fast bowling. Mm -hmm. Fast bowling is so brutal and taxing on your body that it just isn't possible to do it every day. And it's just silly to think that you can. It is, I mean that's, there's, you know the saying, work uh, work smart, don't work hard. Yeah. Like, actually listen exactly to that guy, yeah, 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 exactly he actually right. is that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my advice to myself back then would probably be, you know, be sensible. Yeah. And now, I look at it very differently. Yeah. And I guess I had to go through that in order for Roddy to even put that into my mind, yeah. into my mental space. You know, what is serious? Mm -hmm. And now, having been through it, you can educate people on what it actually is because you've, you've lived it. Yeah. Now, back sort of before we get into the, the sort of final stage of the, the discussion, I suppose, which is about Pace Journal, mm -hmm. how did you get back on the park and what did that look like? And have you become at peace with the game again? And you've, have you found the love for it again? Yeah, um, just going back actually, I'll tell you something funny, um, because I think this is really important for everyone to hear as well. Even this time round, six years after I sort of walked away from the game and everything, when I came back, I still went frame by frame, believe it or not. I still went for my over-analytical approach. Um, I started training for my comeback in, I think, July, in July 2017. Nothing was working. September, I still remember the day, September the 5th, I was in the Mets of Reading Crew Club. Everything fell apart. That was my test day, by the way, where I was like, I'm going to bowl off three steps. Everything fell apart. I, I literally slumped and I cried in the middle of the net. And I remember I was so upset. I went to the gym studio. I picked up this like measuring tape. I don't know what it was. And I didn't think about anything. Honestly, it's a true story. I didn't think about anything. I just ran and bowled and everything felt great. And I was in so much shock. The same day. That same day. An hour or two later. An after hour or two been later. Probably. I went to the gym. And I picked up this like some tape. I don't know what it was. And I remember I still got the video, by the way. And um, I just bowled 
bold the tape. Yeah, I did bold, bold the tape. No, right. just bold the tape. I didn't think. Yeah. I, I literally just did this and I bold. I did not think about anything. Yeah. And I remember it felt so good, Tom. I ran upstairs and um, there was a lady there. She was the only lady there and I said, excuse me, can, I, can you do me a big favour? Can you just come and video something for me? And she's like, um, okay. She went down and said she videoed me and I, I bowled and it felt so great. Like, I could not believe what it was. I remember showing it to um, my, my friend Ochin. I remember saying, Ochin, look at this. Does this look okay? And he goes, that looks great. And I was like, you, you won't understand how great this felt. And I remember going to the next, the next day and doing that exact same thing and it felt great. And um, I, that was, I remember crying so much that over that four year out period. Because I was like, the one time where I did not think everything clicked. And um, oh mate, I felt like I had the world at my feet then because I was like, I was like, I've got it back. And I, again, I still remember um, I went to uh, Bradford College and I was bowling over there, and I remember, you know, Julian Wood. Yeah. Um, he was one. He was my black batting coach actually. Yeah. I remember him watching me, and he was like, but he goes, mate, he goes, you still got it. Yeah. And I, I felt so great. And I remember him saying, look, if you need me to you know, speak to anyone, let me know. You've always had the pace. He goes, if you need me to chat to anyone, let me know. And I, I was, you know, really grateful to hear that from yeah. him after all those years. Yeah. And I remember that's where the confidence just went through the roof. Yeah. And probably, again, such a painful period for me that was because I was like what the were you doing all those years when all it took overthinking over analyzing and not letting not trusting yourself bowling with bowling with some some tape into into just like a mat like you know those yoga mats mm. they were like hung up in mm. the gym studio wall I just bowled into that didn't think about anything and everything clicked for me. Wow, wow. so from there I went from strength to strength and I actually saw my vision for that start to materialize I thought actually you know what I can make this happen. Like yeah. I can actually make this happen again. And so that was September 2017. That was yeah. here in the UK. The season will be coming to an end then. Yeah. Um, we're now in August 2019. Did you play 2018? Have you played this year? Yeah. Are you still playing? Where are you at now? I went to Pakistan December 2017. Everything went very good. That was obviously my benchmark, my test. I remember bowling over there, and everyone in the streams. I still got the video. I'll show all this to you after. Even if you want to link it in there, you can. Um, I remember bowling so quick out there um, in Pakistan. They don't have speed guns, so how they assess your speed is they go when you bowl the ball, they go and look at the pitch and they look at how much you damaged the pitch. Wow! So um, I, I, I've got this video from side on where I bowl the ball and everyone's like, you can just see everyone like the pitch is in. Everyone around. is crowded on the side of the pitch like this, is watching the ball. And as soon as it's like landed and and hit, they've gone up and they've like. Like he's dented the pitch more than anyone ever has here. He's got pace, he's this, he's that. And that was such a crazy moment. And then I came back here and I was like, I'm ready for the season. Um, we had, it, I don't know if you remember, or I'm not sure if you were here at that time, but it, it was one of the rainiest pre-seasons. Pre-season got washed out, by the way. Yeah. We had no pre-season. So straight away, my plans were derailed. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to get my pre-season stuff. Um, I decided to play uh, Division One cricket, not Premier League. Because I felt again, I was trying to use all the knowledge that I'd gained over the years. Don't put this, don't throw, don't jump into the deep end. And I remember, um, I've forgotten the gentleman's name, but he's a Yorkshire first team coach. Andrew Gale. Andrew Gale. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Gale invited me down to come and train with Yorkshire. And I remember my dad was like, go, go, go. And I was like, no. I was like, I'm not doing that again. I was like, I'm not jumping into that deep end. I haven't played a game in six years. I'm not doing it. Um, and actually, I remember David Ripley. He also said, come down to the offense. Yeah. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I played Div 1 cricket, 
and the first game was against Henley and um, I remember I had a little bit of a crowd as well because they were like Spazzes back and everything and honestly Tom it all came <laughs> tumbling down all over again because the first over felt so weird felt so different everything that um, everything had gone well in training um, the match pressure the match environment umpires batsmen wicketkeeper ten fielders well, you start to get up here again scoreboard pressure um, you know after one or two balls stamina was going I was like, damn, like, you know, I'm fit. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I could do 20, 30 miles here. Like, what's happening? Um, and it, it, it got tough. And I remember speaking to Ian at the time, and he said, you just need to play more. And I accepted it. I was like, he's right. Because at this stage, I knew better than to go and be over analytical. Yes. I actually knew at this stage. Huh, I've done that, didn't work. I've done that. It's got nothing to do with that. It is game. Yeah. And in fairness, I had days where I was firing on, like I was unbelievable, but I had days where I was really bad. So there were a lot of inconsistencies. And I remember my uncle said to me at that stage as well, you just need to play more. Get two seasons under your belt. And lucky, luckily enough, we had a guy, Jack Bevan, who was playing um, club cricket with me at the time over there. And he out of nowhere, like he just, he put on like five, six miles an hour and he was rolling real quick. And I asked him, you know, I got advice from him. I said, well, how did it work for you? And he goes, honestly, I bowled loads of overs in the middle. Because played a lot of matches, bowled a lot of overs. Yeah. And he goes, I had a season, um, I did my, uh, in the off season, I went to Australia and I, it all clicked to me there. Mm. So at that stage, I had to make a decision. Okay, do I continue? Um, do I continue just playing and seeing how it goes? Or do I, you know, what do I do? Um, again, it was very frustrating for me because, as you can imagine, losing all of that weight in record time, reinventing my bowling action, bringing the confidence back, getting back in the middle, uh, facing all those demons again, it was hard enough. Mm. But then for it to then go a little bit pear-shaped again, was, was it was tough. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, I was posting quite a bit on social media. So I got a lot of questions from guys on, just, online. Was this, this is something you told me in another question mm. I've got. Was this just on your private accounts, your personal accounts? Obviously now, you've been running Pace Journal, the Instagram account since August last year, yeah. just over a year pretty much. Mm. Back then, was it just on your own All stuff? personal, yeah. all personal. And um, I literally got hundreds of messages from people telling me, oh, maybe we love your action, can you tell us more about it? And I was telling them, don't. Don't you know? Don't fall into this perfection trap. That's all I was doing. I was spending all my time just telling these guys the same thing. And I had questions myself. And I remember at the time, I, I actually mess, I actually messaged um, Tino Best, and I was asking him questions. And I was asking George Scrimshaw, this lovely guy, best Worcestershire, um, asking him questions, and he was answering these questions for me. And I, I thought to myself, if it's like all these guys are asking me questions, I'm asking these guys questions. So I was like, I'm the middleman. Yeah. So. As I told you before, Pace Journal was actually my, my journal of my comeback. Mm. But I could tell things were not going to work that way. So I thought, why don't I just pivot and just interview professionals and put it on Pace Journal and make this public so all of these guys can get that information. So that's where it started. Mm. And um, I remember for just out of nowhere just asking Tina, I said, can I interview you? And uh, I didn't have anything in this stage. I, remember, I didn't have a website, I didn't have anything. And I'm sure you've been there yourself um, when he, he turned around and said no problem I think he was commentating for the T20 Canada League at the time and he said to me no problem I'll be free like next week and I was like, I was like I, I, exactly I was like wow like, firstly I couldn't believe he answered so I was in awe of the fact that he actually replied to me um, can I just say why did why out of all the fastballs in the world was Tino Best your first one you went to um, okay, yeah, that's a really good question I, 
funnily enough, he just came up in the field. Like, right. he, I was just, just looking at stuff, and he was just there, and I thought, well, you know what, man, I, I loved watching him. Fast, yeah. yeah, I loved watching him when I was young. Yeah. Um, so I was just Why literally not? hitting message. I, honestly, I was in bed, like just casually, just doing this. I didn't set out a plan, like, okay, I'm going to message this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. It was just a really, I never, I didn't, I never expected him to actually say yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm sending this message before bed. I was like, this guy's not going to reply. And let's just take this moment to, for all the listeners or viewers <laughs> to just just have a crack because you never know what can come of it. Look at look at what you're doing now yeah, and yeah. how many lives you're changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it probably wouldn't have if you'd not taken that first initial step. And that's why uh, Tino will always have a very special place in my heart. And um, I, I, that's so crazy, right? Because I think he's got like 10 or 12,000 followers. And I remember even the moment I surpassed him, even though it doesn't mean anything, but I remember thinking to myself, what the, like, I can't believe it. Yeah, and yeah. Tino's just started a fitness page. And I remember him saying to me, um, can you promote my page? And I was just like, I, you know, one of the moments I was like, can I, like, yeah, yeah. like really, Tino? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, no problem, mate. Yeah. And he doesn't even know this, but we've got, like, this internal documents that I make for Pace Journal. And the first page is a picture of Tino's face. Yeah. He doesn't know this. Yeah. And I always write there, to Tino, for being number one. Yeah. And I remember telling my, my, my team and everyone, I said, till the day I'm gone, if I'm gone and Pace Journal is still here, this never changes. Yeah, okay. yeah. You never change this. Yeah. This will stay here forever. We will always tribute him, always. And uh, I remember sending it to him as a message, and um, he was like, I said to him, Tino, your, whatever happens, your legacy will always live on through Pace Journal. Really? Purely yeah. because he you gave us started. the hope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You you put me on, because yeah. off of Tino, I got everyone. Because yeah. when I, I remember messaging Aaron Summers, the Australian at that time, and he said, um, we've interviewed Tino. And then all I, of a sudden you're credible and you can, oh yeah, when can I say that? Same thing with Lockie, Lockie Ferguson. I said, oh, hi Lockie, you know, I've interviewed Tino, could I have a chat with you? That's fine. So for me, Tino was yeah. the, the, the first step. Brilliant. And so before we sort of move into where you're at now, 12 months ago, you interviewed Tino and you start sharing content mm -hmm. on Instagram. How, how did that first few months look and how have you now grown it into mm -hmm. what is the, the biggest and best fast bowling Sort of community in the world um the first few months were definitely a lot of learning so again i think more from a marketing perspective like tino's uh, caribbean accent not a lot of people could get it so firstly i thought okay i need to break this down transcribe it and as soon as i got the information like as soon as i transcribed it people just had so many questions and then i sort of took a step back and i thought to myself shabazz this is not your audience, these are young Shabazzes. Like, these guys are you. So what would you want? So I always ask the question, like, even in all of my interviews, I, I never ask questions. Like, people always say, how do you come up with these questions? I was like, very easy, because it's stuff I actually want to know. Yeah, exactly. Like, even yeah. when I spoke to Ishant, right, you'll probably remember this, he was bowling 150 against Ricky Ponting in Australia, and then all of a sudden he was, he was struggling to go over 135. I wanted to know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So when I spoke to him, I said, Ishant, tell me, like, what happened? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the content that we create, it, it is purely from a very authentic place because I want to know the answers, yeah, yeah. and I feel like my community represents me. Yeah. We are one, which yeah. is why I always use a hashtag Pace Family because yeah. it's like you you guys are not different to me. We're yeah, the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. So um, they just wanted more and more and more and more and more and more. So then I started breaking down content and information and and giving them more information about it. Yeah. And they just loved it. Yeah. And again, Amazing. a lot of engagement. I, I interacted with everybody. I tried to give everyone all of my time. And I think they really appreciated that. And from there, we just grew from strength to strength. Yeah. Um, 
and then yeah, a, a lot of you know we had a lot of professional fast bowlers start following us as well, which is really nice. I remember one day I saw Timar Mills, um, Junior Dala, like these guys, and I was like, wow, like you know, I love these guys, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I remember saying to my sister because I always watch, I always watch Timar's videos. Right? I love, I love his action, and um, I messaged him said, can we interview? You? And he was like, yeah, no worries. I said, look, I make these really cool trailers. Can you send me some videos of you? So I'll do it. And he sent me tons of videos of him bowling, honestly. Wow. I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm watching, I'm not even making a trailer, I'm just watching his videos. Just like, enjoying it. Just enjoying it like crazy. And he was sending me so much, he actually sent me some of his dog by accident. <laughs> he, was like, oh, he was like, sorry mate, he was like, ignore the dog stuff. And I was like, no, no worries. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much how it fostered. But Amazing. for me, that was definitely, uh, as, as that community started growing, I kind of accepted that this is, this is where my future lie. Like yeah. everything I learned, everything I experienced in cricket, it was for this. Yeah. You know, it's to give back mm. and to almost. My ambition for Pace Journal is to protect the future from making those same naive mistakes that I made. Mm. Mm. Because for me, they were catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. And um, if I can even help one of them stop doing that, yeah. my job is done. Well, mate, let me take this opportunity to congratulate <laughs> you, for, you so much, for what man. you've Thank done you. and. No doubt, I'm sure there's a load of Pace Journal, um, Pace family yeah, members yeah, yeah. listening or watching, and I'm sure you've influenced hundreds, if not thousands, not just one. So um, I, I sort of certainly have enjoyed following your content for the last 12 months or so. I've learned a lot. Pace bowling certainly not my area of expertise, and I really encourage anyone who's listening to make sure you do follow. You can tell from all of your content how much you do care and how much it does mean to you. You're not there for, I've seen, since I started cricket mentoring three years ago, I've seen accounts come and go. I've seen people try and recreate what I'm doing. And um, I, I can honestly say you're probably the only person or the only account I've seen put as much time and effort into your content and your community as I have. So it's been, it's great to connect with you today, but it's, it's been great to sort of track you as well. So now just coming towards the end, um, you're about to launch, you've just launched the um, Keep Balanced yep. um, campaign. Tell us more about what that's about. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, as you will, you'll know exactly where I'm coming from here. We receive hundreds and hundreds of messages every single day. And one of the main things that I get is from youngsters who tell me that they're really suffering with their mental health. So they're like, look, I don't have any support. I'm feeling really depressed. I'm not getting the results that I want. And um, as I mentioned to you before, I would actually reach back out to all of them and respond to everyone. But when you're dealing with tens, it's fine. But when it gets to hundreds and thousands, it becomes impossible because we're not a multi-million dollar corp, but we don't have a team of guys that are applying. And we only have 24 hours a day. And yeah. we don't only have 24 hours in a day and you have to create all the content, so it becomes very hard. So um, I felt to myself, I, I really want to help, but I don't know how. So it was our one year sort of birthday on August the 12th. And prior to that, I was thinking to myself, okay, what can, what can I actually do to try and help these guys? Um, I, I introduced like a motivational post thing um, a while back, but I figured that that's, you know, people are going to only read one sentence. And what's that going to do? Like, it might help them for that particular moment, but I wanted to create something which was timeless, that they could always go back to it. And for me, it was, it was music. You know, music is like therapy to me. Um, when I, before I bowl, I listen to music. If I'm down, I listen to music. It kind of helps me. So I thought to myself, I, I want to create a fast bowling anthem. You know, it's never been done before. Um, so I, uh, I hooked up with a, um, <laughs> this is a crazy story as well, but uh, I collaborated with an artist from Canada and um, 
Would you ever associate Canada or anyone from Toronto as being cricket fans? Well, before the last probably 18 months, no, but yeah. I now know through my yeah. community how much they love it there. And that's a place that's certainly on my radar to get to soon. We had um, we had this rapper called Base Stacks. Um, he expressed a hell of a lot of enthusiasm for the project. I, mean, I listened to his music and I thought, this guy does not even know what cricket is. I was actually communicating with his manager until one day he actually sent me a message, just like two weeks into the project. And he said, do you know I'm a love fast bowler? I said, sorry, what? And he goes, yeah. He goes, growing up, I was playing for the Toronto Cricket Academy. Yeah. All I ever wanted to do was be a fast bowler, but um, I, I lost the love for it. And I was like, no way. And he sent me videos of him. And I was like, went back and we were speaking internally. We were like, this, this is just, dude, this is just too much. Like, how? Meant how? to be. Yeah, like, it was just meant to be. And um, I gave him my own personal experiences and struggles for cricket. I took a lot from what our community shared with me and I, I gave him a lot of context. He came back and he, he created this unbelievable song. Um, and the song was just so powerful, I said to myself, look, I need to create a video to this. Um, don't ask me how. Somehow, some way, shot the music video ourselves internally. Um, I acted in it, so I'm, I'm acting out the experiences that I told. And for me, this is, um, the campaign has been about two weeks. And in that two weeks, I've tried to give a lot more of my own personal stories and a lot of the lessons that I learned along the, uh, along those years to try and help these guys. And the song will go on YouTube this Sunday, the 25th of August. And I'm hoping that whenever these guys are down and they don't have somebody who they can talk to, um, they go and watch this video and listen to this song and they get that little bit of uh, relief from it. Amazing, amazing. Well, we're sitting here Thursday the 22nd of August, so the song's released in a couple of days. This yep. podcast won't go out for another few weeks. so. It will be live when this is um, launched, so we'll have a link to it in the show notes you. um, and the YouTube video. So um, I know you put a short clip of it on yeah. Instagram the other yeah, day, yeah, yeah. so um, not, I'm, I'm really looking forward yeah, to it, yeah, and I'm yeah. sure all the Pace family <laughs> are, are as well. So um, excellent, and, and like you say, music is therapy. No, yeah. no doubt this is going to change the lives even more for a number of um, What else is, what, what's next for Pace Journal? Um, we're looking to evolve our content. We've got quite a lot of exciting things going on internally. Um, just trying to work, just trying to work it out. I mean, I've for the last 12, 13 months, I've been doing this every single day. Uh, it's taken a lot out of me as well. So, I'm, after this campaign is done, I'm probably going to take two, three days to just unwind, recharge stay, the RNS, stay, stay off, stay off of social media completely, and then uh, map out the next steps for uh, ho hopefully some exciting stuff. Too. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we'll, uh, we'll we'll bring it to a close very soon. But the final few questions I ask all of our guests are: Why do you play cricket? Or why did you play cricket? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to use a quote that someone once said to me: "Cricket made me something." So for me, I felt like it was my identity. Um, it's, it just like anyone who's played cricket will probably understand what I mean by that. Um, you could, uh, if you're a batsman, you could have an average of one. When you put on the lid, you get in the middle, you feel like you're the man. And I, for me, that's that's why I play. Because take all of it, you know, it's never been fame, it's never been money, it's never been anything like that. It made me something. Mm. So that's that's my place where I'm uh, I'm 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 my hero. Mm. So for me, that's that's why. Amazing. Um, now, what is your definition of success? Uh, I want to say being happy and content, but also at the same time making a difference and helping the world because I feel like um, 
a lot of people are very money hungry like just like you've experienced I've noticed so many people come up and jump on the fast bowling bandwagon um, after we've come on board and, and shown how big the market actually is but um, for me Pace Journal as I mentioned to you before it never started off as trying to make money um, I always look at money as a consequence not the driver so for me ethical business um, making a difference should always come before um, just trying to for me success is that making a difference amazing well you are making a difference um, you seem happy <laughs> well, I'm um, very happy yeah. excellent so so you're very successful in my book so Thank well done so and finally um, where can everyone follow you personally and also obviously give all the handles for Pace Journal yeah uh, just at Pace Journal is everywhere personally I try to post more on at Mr Pace Journal um, thanks to my niece who has forgotten my name now and all my birthday cards or anything, it's always Dear Pace Journal, which sees me I Pace Journal, so yeah, I've, lo I've lost my name. You're a global phenomenon. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to find out more about the man behind Pace Journal um, and hear his incredible and inspiring story. So, no doubt all of our listeners and viewers have, have got a huge amount um, of inspiration and also lots of great lessons out of that as well. So, Shabazz, thank oh, you very much, Thank you mate. so much for the time, man. Cheers. Cheers. Well, legends, wasn't that a fascinating story? Shabazz has had his fair share of setbacks and struggles along the way, but I love how he's using them to drive him to help fast bowlers around the world become their best. What stuck with me was the advice he would now give his younger self, to trust yourself and don't chase perfection. If anyone knows something about this, it's Shabazz, having spent over three years out of the game to try and get the perfect action. I think it's a great lesson for all of us that perfect isn't real. It was great to connect with Shabazz and hear his story. If you enjoyed it or learned something, then please share it with your friends and on your social media pages. Remember to tag me, at Skulls5, as I'd love to hear your thoughts. And also make sure you follow Pace Journal, at Pace Journal, and Shabazz, at Mr. Pace Journal, to stay up to date with what they're doing. We've also put the video of this chat on our YouTube channel, Cricket Mentoring. So head over there if you want to watch it and please subscribe to our channel if you haven't already done so. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and learnt something from it. Now it's time to go out and get it done, legends.